Yo, I, if, I cannot believe in 2022 that I'm sitting here talking to the members of this band that I've loved pretty much since my entry into hardcore. And that's 411. It's unreal to me. And one of the coolest things, honestly, that's happened to me as a result of doing this podcast. We've done a lot of cool shit. I mean, we talked to Bold. We talked to Into Another. Like, we, we've done a lot of really cool stuff. But for me personally, talking to 411 is really cool. And I'm glad that we get to do this episode with Kevin, Josh, and Dan. What's up, guys? Hello. You know, Hello. every episode you do after this is going to be absolute shit now. It's all downhill from here. <laughs> it really is. Until we get... Yeah. <laughs> I don't know about setting the high water mark in April, man. You're screwing the rest of your year. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a, just a risk I'm willing to take. Um, I know I have a ton of questions, but Greg, Jason, do, do you, I mean, do you want to kick it off? I was, I was going to let you sort of drive this one because... You know, like I've I've talked about, I'm I'm sort of newer to to four one one. You guys didn't, you know, I when you existed ninety to ninety two, I wasn't uh, tapped into the scene. Um, and then, you know, when we started the pod and we did the no for an answer seven inch, then Hav and Jason were like, "Yo, you got to listen to four one one," and I did. And then I was like, "Oh man, this shit is fucking great." Um, but I know for especially Hav. These guys have been fans for a lot longer than I have. So I just figured you could sit in the driver's seat, Jason in the passenger seat, and I'll just chill in the back seat. So uh, my first show was, my first hardcore show was January 25th, 1992. And uh, I know that because Igby was selling an original flyer for the show and it happens to be 411 trigger man mission impossible and black spot however uh the show got broken up in the middle of black spot or right after black spot it was a warehouse in anaheim california i was not old enough to drive i lay down in the back of a truck a little like suzuki truck with two other idiot skateboarders 15 year olds drove from Costa Mesa to Anaheim and I, I couldn't believe what I saw in real life. I couldn't believe that there was, you know, people moshing and jumping off stage. And this was my first time witnessing hardcore bands playing in a live setting. Unfortunately, I didn't get to see 411. And so if that's 1992, I'm guessing that you guys maybe didn't play too much after that. Well, we, I think we probably had another seven months maybe left in the tank. So that seemed yeah. all right. Yeah. Cause the second tour was in 92 and that would have, I assume that would have been in the summer. That's, that's when everyone went on tour. So community it, college and all that. if you dissolved in 92, let's talk about when you came together <clears throat> and this had to have been sometime after Dan, your previous band, no for an answer um dissolved and then tell us about how you got together with Kevin and uh Josh were you the original bass player as well 
Yes. And then Mario, who's not with us today. I mean, he's still in, in he's still alive, but he's just not with us today <laughs> in this chat. Um, so. Yeah. I, I kind of look at today more as a celebration of Mario's life than a funeral. I think we all agree. <laughs> it's, it's, it's more coming from that angle. I mean, he was a very special person to all of us. Um, he wasn't the original drummer, actually. I think the rest of us were. Vadim Rubin did a very short stint in the band, but it was while we were sort of exploring a different musical style. And that's a useful segue because you're, you know, paving the way for me to talk first. I never want to step on the other guy's toes. But as far as you're at your question about no, no for an answer on that transition, no for an answer didn't trans, transition directly into 411. It transitioned into Carrie Nation, which was a revisitation of a band that existed before no for an answer. But by that time, we were doing it even harsher and sort of tongue in cheek as sort of a, you know, this, this is a bunch of six, six foot somethings that, you know, as a combined membership weighed about a thousand pounds while everybody on the East coast was singing about militancy and enforcing the edge and everything else. And we found that hilarious. Well, people took the band very seriously and gave it even more credence than no for an answer. That didn't work. For me. So, I mean, it was very, very easy to, to want to do something different that was a bit more intellectual and had a bit more of a moral agenda or a social agenda musically i know that we kind of explored like a neurosis type thing because we were all sort of looking outside orange county hardcore and everything else but i think our real musical dna was sort of more where we landed i've listened to kevin tell the story and i know we don't remember events exactly the same way but essentially i think we can at least agree on this the two songs came from a cassette you gave me yeah yeah songs that became the ep yeah and i don't remember if i i had forgotten the whole suburban voice uh, Dave Smalley aspect of it. But when I heard you uh, talking about it somewhere else, it, it immediately came back to me. And I don't remember if those songs were written specifically for that or if I already had them because I, I was borrowing um, like a four-track recorder from, from Mike um, from Head First quite a bit um, just because um, I, I, I was never never really a, a drummer. I was always a guitar player. So I always had, I had all these ideas in my head and I wanted to get them recorded. So I may have had these already recorded by the time this, the, the, the Alquint uh, uh, Smalley thing came around. But uh, I, I honestly, I don't remember, but I, I, I do remember there were, there were two songs and those, that's what wound up being on the set. And then Josh and I literally grew up in the same neighborhood. We grew up about four blocks. And I was very close with him and his brother and his mom and we had talked about bands off and on with all kinds of different people. I mean, Gavin Van Vlack had been in the conversation. Uh, we practiced. Of, yeah, we actually practiced. We couldn't, we couldn't agree on the name. Um, <laughs> but a lot of different things. And then, like I said, you know, there was sort of a big crew of punk rockers surrounding Fat House where Kevin lived. And Josh was very much social with those people. Met Mario through, Mar through a Chuck Priest when I was working on voice box. And just like five minutes exposure to him on drums, like the mental Rolodex was filed. I was like, I will be touching base with this kid at some point. And was he, knowing he was out there and very few people knew about him, I was like, mine, 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 you know. And were there vocals on that tape that you had? Or I just wanted, I want to know about the lyric process, writing lyrics for four and one, since it's different from no for an answer. And I just... I'm a fan of the lyrics, so I wanted to talk to you about what your memories are for writing lyrics for these songs. Well, particularly including those homophobic on the seven inch was trying to plant a very specific flag, which was okay, this macho thing, this 
hardcore hyper match gun superhero routine has, you know, got to kind of stop. And let's, you know, who better, who better to uh, raise their hand and call bullshit than somebody was perceived as a little bit of a gorilla. You know, by the time we were out on the road, my shaven head was gone and I had your standard Orange County floppy long, long bangs hairdo and a strange hip swiveling new dance for my live set. You know, it was like the choice of lyrics on that thing were the first song that, you know, I'm tired of thinking thoughts of feed the fire, the thought crusader, he meets the selfish liar was sort of trying to pull the veil back on what was becoming habitual in every band, which was that the membership were supposed to be seen as these morally ascendant superheroes. And then, like I say, though it's homophobic in 1990, 1991 was a very blatant pushback against toxic masculinity, which wasn't called that at the time. Um, Kevin, do you sing the the backups on those songs, the, the like the higher register, or is that all Dan? On the recording? Yeah. On the seven inch, I think the backups were, that was Dave, Dave Smalley. I didn't, I, I would do, oh. yeah, I would do some yelling, like when we uh-huh. did live, like the, the sort of like group chorus things, but that was, that was it. And how Kevin did he have the unenviable job of doing the backups by himself on a standing mic at almost every show? And our voices are so different. It made for a contrast. Yeah, yeah. Sorry about that. I was saying, how did you hook up with uh, Smalley? Well, for one thing, let's say that this was prior to an understanding of where his politics would evolve to. Because I can't picture involving Smalley in my music at this point. I can picture being cordial. I think that's a necessary part of human beings having productive conversations. But we are massively divergent in our views. Um, That was a time when anybody you would cross paths with and that into hardcore it sort of assumed you were on the same page in terms of agenda, or at least somewhere close, right? Yeah. Then that said, you know, because Gavin and I were social with him, because Carrie Nation played shows with Down by Law and everything else, I thought he was the guy behind the absolute high water mark vocally in the history of hardcore. I still don't know if there's been a better, more diverse vocal performance than his vocals on Can I Say. You know, and so having me in, like, yeah, I absolutely slept in. I wanted to do, do something with him badly. And I pitched it to Al Quint when Al Quint pitched the seven inch to me. Used him on the LP too. You see, he his he does second vocals on self help. Oh, okay. Well, uh, for some reason, I knew on the seven inch because you can you can clearly hear him. Like he like you said, he has such a recognizable voice. I see um, what's on my mind. Yeah, yeah. Well, sounds like can, a southern bell, but it's great. I mean, I, I guess that proves uh, these two guys know that I'm not a, a huge. Uh, Smalley fan musically I, that's nothing to do aside politics aside i'm not i'm not the guy so i didn't i i don't know that i've ever even looked at the insert to the seven inch i just listened to it and i didn't realize that that was dave Smalley. so i look like a moron and that's okay <laughs> what do you mean you don't study the uh inserts for all these records who are who are you I mean, you know that I do, but just that's not this particular just not this one. one. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> this is actually uh, for me. This is a band where you know, and we'll get to it. But the stuff on the discography, um, all of those extra songs, I would in my youth pride myself on being able to put some of those weird songs onto a, a cassette on a mix, a mixtape. You know what I mean? Like, hey, I got. I got that song. I borrowed the box set from Dan Senna so that I could put this weird 411 song on here that's not on the 12 inch. 
And so maybe that's the way that I took a lot of this music in and shows my age also is through the medium of cassette. So it's not necessarily sitting in my bedroom, pouring over the lyric sheets of some of these, but driving around in my 82 tr- Corolla with a fucking boombox playing 411 on the way to the, hit the skate spots in Orange County, you know? So get off my back with the fucking. <laughs> the other thing I remember before we get off of the seven inch was that I knew it would catch people off guard because Kevin was in a band that was on my label. He was in head first. And like, I perceived him as a drummer. So beyond that, I perceived him as a head. You know, and and if you were going to have tastes outside of, if you were going to have tastes outside of sort of the metal that that I had heard, the neurosis was going to make all the sense in the world. The range that he showed when he sent me that that, that blew my mind. I mean, did you listen to that broader array of stuff back then? Yeah, yeah. Well, so at that time, I mean, I 1990, I was I was 19 years old, and I had been actively a participant in the hardcore scene or community for maybe three years. Um, and everything before that was, it was all all metal. And I, I knew like, you know, Black Flag and, and Minor Threat and Dead Kennedys and the, the big bands, but you know, like the, the, the real um, hardcore scene and the smaller bands was completely alien to me. And I got some exposure to it when I was in um, my uh, um, sophomore year of high school in, in uh, Tennessee, and I moved out to California, and that's where I met the guys from Head First. So um, I was, at that time, I was eating up everything I could get my hands on. Um, so whether that was, was, you know, old Crucifix records or Youth Brigade or the Dicks or any of that stuff, it was all new to me. And the hardcore scene, at least my perception of it at that time in Orange County was very rules-based. And I was hyper aware of the fact that I was new and that I could easily be perceived as a poser. So I felt this uh, need to sort of learn the history as as quickly and as deeply as I could. so yeah, I was listening to all kinds of stuff. And, and I think at that time when I was writing that, I was listening to a combination of a lot of government issue and a lot of the instigators. Um, and I was very lucky that I lived with, with Ron Martinez because even, even at that time, just he had a, a wall of records that went back endlessly in time. And, and he was so generous about it. Just like, listen to whatever you want, take whatever you want. Um, so I felt like I had access to the world. Um, but yeah, that, that, at that point, I was listening to stuff that was very, uh, I guess, melodic. I mean, you know, the, I think the Dag Nasty influence is there. I was super excited to be doing something with, with Dave Smalley. I had, I had the same um, level of appreciation for Dag Nasty, I think, that, that Dan did. But I was also very excited to be in a band with Dan. Um, I loved No For An Answer. And, and I know that, that you know, Carrie Nation was, was tongue-in-cheek, but I absolutely love that band. Um, and I remember seeing you guys live, and the, the full set was just awesome. The, the, the song, um, I think it was called Temple Walls. It was super simple, but just so effective. Um, and so I was very excited to be doing something with Dan because uh, 
I, I just I just thought Dan was was the best vocalist out there in that scene, and I was yeah, excited well, to do I something. Showed you. <laughs> I was I was excited to, be, to to work with Josh as well because because I knew Josh and I liked Josh a lot, but I also at the time was a big fan of Farside. Like this was before they even had their demo out. Um, so I I felt very lucky to be in this band. I I, I felt like I was surrounded by. Um, some some pretty heavy hitters, and uh, it, it was it was intimidating to to say the least. Josh, what do you remember from that time period? Just the formation of four one one and getting the the songs together and recorded for the seven inch. It felt like a long time coming. Like, uh, well, just we had a lot. I feel like a lot of stops and starts because we did start the direction that we. I feel like we were listening to Neurosis has been mentioned, but. I think a big uh, influence at the time was, um, I believe it was Ozma and Gluey Porch Treatments from Melvins came out on one CD. And I feel like that was sort of like, just um, had a giant influence on, a, on, a, on us all. And we were sort of trying to do something like dip just slow and um, just different, really just something different. And uh, so we did, as I mentioned earlier, um, we, we went through a couple drummers and we kind of went back and forth. We went from the, the, uh, the Melvin sound to the back, say to the Dagnasty sound. And, um, and then when we finally found Mario or stuck with Mario, um, it kind of all just came together. It seems like it took forever, but it was probably only two months of, you know, trial and error before I feel like we had a pretty, um, like this was going to be it. I think this is, we can, you know, go forward now. Like this is the direction we're headed in. And I think everyone was really, um, I don't know. There was just something like, like none of us had ever done anything like this before. It was exciting. Um, and potential just at the time seemed kind of possible. So, um, and, and, and it was great to have someone like Mario in the band who was, it's just strange now. Cause I think he was 17 when we all met him. And so, you know, he was just a kid and, but he had, he's one of those guys that is always envious of, and like Kevin's the same, who's good at everything you throw in front of them in, in any instrument. They're just like almost proficient. And it's like nerve wracking when I'm trying to be good at one thing. Um, <laughs> isn't the government issue cover just you, just you two? It's you, isn't it you and, it's you and Kevin, right? Yeah, it's just yeah. you and me, right, Kevin? Yeah. Yeah. Fuck those guys who can record a whole song by themselves. <laughs> and I don't I remember the, the ukulele. Yeah, I don't remember the circumstances around that either. There was, I know there was I had to work that day. And I'm sure Mario was just stuck in Vista. But I, I think, and I think Mario was just, I mean, I think we all shared basically this, a huge thing was the same sense of humor. And we all came from a very uh, punk rock background we all had multiple influences things that we loved things that we would make fun of each other about but also just we had a giant appreciation of music in general whether it be punk rock metal hardcore um and i think that really i don't know i feel like we're all definitely on the same uh wavelength as well, far well, as go ahead kevin i was just gonna say i i remember josh and, and um uh, anthony and i went to go suzanne go see suzanne vega and I remember thinking, I'm going to see Suzanne Vega with Josh and Anthony, like, like yeah. two like super punk dudes, and, and we're very excited about it. Anthony Persinger? Yeah. The yeah. beer? <laughs> okay. What um, um what I would if I could 
spit one thing out, Greg, and hog the mic and be an asshole. One thing that I was thinking about, you know, we, we're doing the Where It Went podcast, right? And there's there's a mild amount of conversation going on between us and Revelation. And we were pitched the last Revelation revival, revival as an unannounced band and everything else. But what's funny, when Josh was talking about our backgrounds and stuff, when we would go, particularly the first tour, when, you know, band members aren't starting to wear on each other and stuff, the sense of humor was crucial. But the musical diversity and the diversity of interests was everything. Because people perceive us, I think now in retrospect, as being part of a very specific sphere. But the great shows were with Christ on a crutch, were with, you know, Spitboy, were, you know, getting to stay a profane existence and things like this. These were the things that made Full on One feel like stepping outside the Orange County box and something that would have longer legs and, I think, greater significance, at least for me. Yeah, you know, on the podcast, we talk a lot about the eras of Revelation, right? You have the the youth crew, the New Keep York. Keep in mind, we were never on right? Right. But then... You move into the college years, which is like super touch. And some of these bands who started experimenting because of their age, they got tired of playing youth crew. They got tired of playing the same, you know, type of music. And they started experimenting, taking in new um, influences, look at into another who didn't sound like underdog or, or youth of today. And so when I think of 411, I don't think of necessarily that orange county hardcore sound right i don't think of uh instead and and your kevin your previous bands or dan your previous bands 411 to me sounded so different from these uh the tempo was a little bit slower the production to me sounded a little bit better there was like more octaves and more harmonies and more singing and it's definitely more mature and to hear, you know, Kevin, you talk about your musical influences and how you wanted to expand things and, and Dan, how you wanted to get away from, you know, some of the lyrical themes or maybe how people were pegging you. It's, a, it's like a real culmination of all those things. And, and I think this, this, this is a kind of a benchmark of a, a new sound and a new era of hardcore in Southern California. I'm just going to put that out there. I'm going to put that on you. They all respond with stunned silence. Yeah, <laughs> you, you're mad, sir. <laughs> no, I, I see what, I mean, I see what he's saying. I, I had no idea, you know, I guess based on just my cursory, you know, knowledge of no for an answer as a kid. Cause again, I'm on the East coast. So East Coast people, I mean, Jason's on the East Coast as well, but like, I think maybe, maybe on the East Coast people kind of tend to ignore some West Coast stuff, I feel like, unfairly, um, but I just, I had no idea that this band was going to sound like it did until I heard it, and I was like, oh my God, like, it's totally something that I would have loved even back then, and Yeah, it this is, is different. This, musically, this is up your alley. Right, yeah. Greg. This absolutely, hundred percent. The the government issue, the dag nasty, the smally, whatever. Like those influences, you can hear that stuff in the in the guitars, right? hundred percent. Like yeah. the DC, like I hear a little more like the mm -hmm. the DC, the Discord stuff, which is you know all my bread and butter. I, I wanted to before we went too far, and I wanted to ask too. We didn't bring up the name. Like who thought of mm. of the name of just like. 
I guess, was it a reaction to having a name like no for an answer that was long and just like, we're going to have something. It, it, it was so incredibly basic. It was just because 411 is the number you dial for information. <laughs> <laughs> you know? And this is pre, this is pre 311. And this is pre <laughs> brand bands branding themselves with their area code, which speak, which I still don't call speak 714 had to do for legal reasons. There are actually jackets in the speak LP out there that just say speak on them, but it was not part. It wasn't something common. So having a band whose name was a number, and having most people know that that number meant information. That was a su sufficient number, a sufficient amount of clever to say, okay, now let's write songs. Yeah, uh, it made for a, a beautiful logo too. That's right. <laughs> that's right. I, I, I was gonna say it's like it really stands out and like. You know, you see, like in the in the seven inch, you got the logo. Oh, it's taking, no. And uh, it's yeah. just nice and bold and. There's simple. there's three reasons that logo exists. If if you guys edit, don't you? These podcasts, sure. yeah, we can. <laughs> well, I'm just one thing. I think everyone in the band knows I'm the one who tends to run at the mouth. But the or at least I was 30 years ago. I don't think that's changed. Um, but that logo exists for three very specific reasons. The No For An Answer, I Spy logo, the Verbal Assault, Two Eyes in the Middle of the Circle logo, and John Yates. Yeah. I fell in love with the way Circle logo looks on the back of shirts, and I didn't have the skills to make it, but I knew John did. You know, it's not yeah. the most original thing in the world, but I dig it. You know? This the, the Circle logo on the back of a shirt, a black shirt with white ink. It it just it's so striking, right? And, yeah. and it's Kevin who insists that all of our merchandise be black. It's the first uh, Zoom when we were getting back together. Guy. We were talking about shirts. He was trying to tell me we're doing everything on white now. That's all. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, it's funny you mentioned John Yates. I know Dan. You've had a, a long like relationship with. He's one of my best friends. With John, we fall out, um, we fall out of touch for very long periods of time, but John and I have helped each other through i mean it started as punk rock network but we ended up helping each other through some of the more difficult points in our lives i trust the guy with anything and i'm honored that he still does graphics for me and it's freaky to me that he still refuses payment steadfastly yeah. anyway. his work is all i love his yeah. graphics and he did those um the blue note tributes for the the band the range two, records the last two digital releases that china's club did when we decided you know we're not really active so we're not going to press this stuff John did Blue Note version covers that I had him call them Sour Note or Sick Note or something, something fucked up, right? But they're the same as that Blue Note series that he's been doing. But yeah. this is the reason I'm telling this story in the middle of a 411 interview and to just, is to just give John some credit. I asked him about it and asked him to think about it and told him which one I, ones I liked. And I expect I'd hear from him in a month or two. I got him back in a day. You know, wow. <laughs> like John's a freak. John <laughs> just sits down and makes it happen. We always, we, we really, especially because Jason is a, a designer. We, we tend to make sure that we uh, mention graphic you know, people who do the, the yeah. artwork and the design, because it is such an important part of the music. I mean, that's why we still buy record, you know, why we can't necessarily just be okay with just going on YouTube and, and listening to something like you want to have, because uh, thoughts put into everything, you know, like the, why you chose the photograph, why the layout. And um, so, yeah, we, we like talking about art. Which is why I got to ask about the cover for the record. For This Isn't Me, the bands. The shoes. Yeah. Um, there were, it's, it used to seem brilliant to me and really insightful, but uh, 
with each progressive year that hardcore sort of moved away from the hardcore was at one point hardcore punk. It was the most savage of the punk rock stuff, right? And from about 88 on, hardcore seemed to start being perceived as kind of its own entity, which is also all well and good. Musical forms evolve, right? It also seemed to be one of the more codified things I'd ever witnessed and coming from a space that was maybe the most freeform and least codified of anything I'd ever been in. And it was at some point that I heard somebody refer to my vans when somebody else bought a pair of low top black vans as, oh, you got the O'Mahonies, right? I took a picture of those shoes on my bed. And once we had, when we had a song called This Isn't Me, it was like, well, I mean, there's no, you know, flawless taste, sir. But anyway, it was just a matter of, to me, it was like, you know, these are just shoes or any amount of clothing or any, any aesthetic choice you make attached to the music is really just that aesthetic. It's not who you are. That was, you know, the photo, the photograph is lucky. It's taken on a shit camera on my bed. <laughs> you know, it's not, it's, I didn't, it, there was nothing brilliant about it. But when I saw the print, I was like, Oh, that might be useful. Yeah. I think it's iconic. It's awesome. It's a record that I've like, I've loved to cover for, for years. But so that is, cool that is, backstory. I agree with you. And the only reason I'm comfortable saying that is because it is entirely a happy accident. I, like I'm capable. I'm not capable of iconic photography. I also love, you know, on the cassette version that the, the, the song titles are on the front there. It's and and the square um, of the shoes, like it's kind of reminiscent of the like seventies rock ZZ Top, you know, where it would have the the square on it, and then the well, the. Well, let's go ahead and under. get this out of the way. Am I the only one on the screen that was born in the nineteen sixties? Yeah. Okay, so we're done here. <laughs> <laughs> but they all cassettes used to have the songs on the front. Yeah. No, I, I, SST did that a lot too. Like yeah. if you look at, they like were the, also old people, Greg. That's true. <laughs> they, and they were born in the fifties. So uh, uh, last thing on the artwork for the LP, Dave Mandel took the photo that's on the back. What do you remember from that show or from working with Dave to get the photos for that? That's not a me thing. That's probably more of a Josh thing. Okay. I just love that photograph. Um, I think Dave had just sent over, I know we were like pen pals because I believe Dave lived in the, the, in the valley. Yeah. yeah. And, um, but I think I also, because I worked at Zed Records, which was sort of a hub, um, really great, I guess, networking, you know, at the time, um, a lot, I would see people quite often, especially on the weekends, just from all over would stop there. And I don't know if that's how it happened, but he was... Um, yeah, he would, I mean, he was taking a lot of photographs and he just present, I just, and I just loved, there was a bunch I, um, that he's taken over, you know, over the, those two years, but that one just seemed like a great, I don't know, there was something about it that it just seems, I don't know, I just, it was great. I remember, I love that the helmet shirt was in it. Yeah, same. Um, well, but there's, there's even more to it than that, which is, I don't know if you, you, you Kevin and Josh, do you remember this? It wasn't unheard of for their drummer to turn up in his 411 shirt. Oh, yeah. Which, which felt like this incredible endowment, this totally unexpected nod, because even though it was hardcore adjacent, that was a different sphere, you know? So I. I, John, I was I, that John Stain here, right? Yeah. yeah. I've seen John since. I've seen Battles a few times, and, and we still kind of reminisce. Uh, it's been years now, but I mean, I have seen him, and he, he still asks about the band, which is <laughs> bizarre, but. That's cool. Yeah, he's a great dude and an incredible drummer. Yeah. 
So the sure. first time the first time I heard 411 was through the 1281 New Deal skate video. And it just was this perfect combination of Mike Vallely skating to face the flag and then Ed Templeton skating to those homophobic. And I think there were other skate videos that the band was involved with, but how did that connection kind of take place to work with those skate companies to get four and one into those videos? And did you notice the reaction and popularity of the band growing from this? I assume that was all Mario. I mean, he was, he was sponsored by New Deal. Um, he was riding for them. Um, I've never seen the videos. I know that they were on some of them, but I, I've been on a skateboard all of 10 minutes in my entire life. It's just, it's, <laughs> been, it's never held me. It's, like, it's like Brian Wilson, not actually knowing how to surf. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, so yeah, I think that was all a Mario thing. I just assumed that the, the label or the, the company came to him and just said, Hey, you're, you're in a band. We need music. But I, I, I don't honestly know. Okay. I don't know if you guys know. It just fits I, together oh. so perfectly. So go ahead. Sorry, Josh. Oh, no, I um, actually, not to be a pain in the ass, but Mario actually, uh, his name of his company was New School. Oh, that's right. That's a right. company in, I believe, Paul Schmidt. With, um, and I think after Sh he had formed it, and I think Mike was just a hardcore kid uh, as well. Like, um, And I know Ed lived, I know, I think they both lived in Huntington at the time. And um, I think it was pure luck, to be honest, and maybe the Mario connection. But um, I, th I don't think we stayed around too much longer after those songs uh, came out on that video. I know we got to go into the warehouse and get some free gear. But um, I feel like if, if we had maybe hung around a little longer, we probably would have noticed an uptick. But um, I feel like it was just right towards the end or the last, you know, six, eight months when that came out. There's an after the fact story about Valeli and us being on Valeli's videos, right? Which is, we didn't really, you know, we didn't know him. I'm sure Mar Mario did, right? But Valeli was a straight edge guy. And I guess that's right. Disciplined yeah. about it at the time. And about just about exactly 10 years after 411 was done, I owned a bar in Huntington Beach and was catching plenty of incoming fire over the last seven or eight years for being a notorious edge breaker, right? And Blue Note Video had used to have a show called The Ten Count, and they did get the name from the bar, which was called The Ten Count, right? And for the pilot episode, they filmed all the, the host throws throwing the different footage. They used Vallely, and they filmed it at the bar. And Vallely comes up to me in my own bar and goes, Dan O'Mahony, man, what happened to you? You used to be great. And I was like, <laughs> wow. I was like, well, I don't know much about you, Mike, but I think I'm still pretty fucking fantastic. You're in my room. You know, <laughs> but it was, it was what it was. And then, you know, 10 years, 20 years after that, we played a show together to, right at the beginning of COVID and all the lead up to that was entirely COVID, you know, horrible and we didn't behave like children anymore. But yeah, that was the, that was the only contact I had with him while being on his videos was hearing that I used to be great. Wow. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I heard about the band from skateboarders. Um, one of the kids that I went to the, the show that I explained was a, an amateur skater named Quee. And everyone that I was around was skateboarding, listening to 411. And it just kind of seemed like hand in hand at the time. It was, it was a really interesting thing. And of course, I, I, I do attribute that to Mario Rubicaba being a professional skater. And, you know, it just kind of. We used to show up at out-of-state shows and kids would watch Mario skate. 
Like, yeah. you could find Mario because there'd be a little group standing around him watching him <laughs> flop around the parking lot. <laughs> and we played a few skate parks, which I don't know, maybe wouldn't have happened without him. I don't know. The skate videos, though, I know were important for a lot of pe- a lot of people just getting into a lot of bands, you know. Yeah, there's a band from Santa Cruz called The Odd Numbers. And the oh, first, God, yes. The, the first New Deal video, huge, like, amount of Odd Numbers songs in that video, right? And yeah. then, but you couldn't find that shit then. Like, you, it's not like you could Google it and be like, how do I get, download Odd Just Numbers? Well, have, you guys, yeah. have you guys seen the old flip side video, the Minor Threat flip side video? Yeah. Yeah. When they're all skating around acting the fool in that empty schoolyard, mm-hmm. that was probably some of the first visual imagery that started pulling me out of leather jackets and British punk mm. and towards the American stuff. Skateboarding and its imprint on American hardcore, it's indelible and irreversible. Yeah. And I'm like Kevin. I couldn't save my fucking life, but it, yeah, it's, it's a flagpole in this music. For sure. Absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, so many times I've listened to, sorry, Hav, I was just no, go ahead. wrap up the skateboarding part, but like, I remember listening to a lot of different podcasts and a lot of people from like born, like you said, 60s, 70s, even 80s got into music um, because of skateboarding. Like they would watch skateboarding videos, hear a song in it, and then, or, or reading Thrasher, because, you know, Thrasher would have, oh, yeah, yeah, uh, you know, features on bands and get into stuff that way. So it's super important for sure. And yeah, I always associated. 411, I, I guess maybe because of Mario, but mm-hmm. with... Uh, I think we all need to stop with the maybe. He was on Alva with 10 pounds of <laughs> And That's his true. skating before Definitely. shows seemed to yeah. be a part of us arriving in a town. I think the maybe's a little bit of a gesture when we talk about the connection. <laughs> uh, <laughs> 411 and skating, the connection is Mario. To, to wrap up the skateboarding talk, I wanted to give a bit of bow to Joe Nelson who can be seen skateboarding in the new Circle Jerks video. Um, It's actually really cool, the video. It looks, they made it look like old footage. And I had to kind of strain my eyes to to notice that that was Nelson, but he's in there and he didn't break his hip. So good for him. Um, So going through 92, 411 starts winding down. Um, How did you guys- The album- happened somewhere in the middle uh-huh yeah, yeah the album that, was that a very album different experience thing. than the lp i mean than the ep uh-huh yeah talk about recording the the lp and yeah recording up to and, it. uh coming out on work shed slash cargo well once we got once we got mario in place it, the the songs that wound up on the lp came together really quickly um and it just, and, and, and Dan mentioned this, but, but we, we often practiced um, at the house that I was living at. And so Mario lived in, um, in Vista down, down by San Diego. So he would come up for the weekend and he would, he'd be up there for two full days. And so we would practice quite a bit. And we got these songs together pretty quickly. And when we went into the studio, um, which was, it was, it was West Beach, but it was like the new West Beach. I think yeah, it wasn't in a house anymore. It wasn't in a yeah. house in the back alley in Hollywood. It was its own freestanding building. Yeah. Um, that's Brett Gerwitz studio, right? Brett Gerwitz from bad religion. Is that his place? I he just recorded it, it is. And he, and he produced the seven, but he wasn't really involved in the club. Okay. Yeah. 
but the, the thing I remember about the LP is, is, is really three things is, um, and, and, uh, on a zoom call recently, Josh and I talked about this. I didn't have a tuner. So I was just sort of tuning my guitar to what I thought was correct. So, um, most of the tracks, the guitar is slightly out of tune. And, and for a perfectionist like myself, it drives me fucking bananas to listen to that. Um, it drives me nuts. But um, I also remember Dave Smalley coming in and doing the vocals and he and I talking. But the third thing is that I, that's all I remember. I don't remember what we talked about because I had pneumonia at the time. And because of just like budgeting and, and jobs and all of that, it wasn't like we could, you know, say to uh, the studio, hey, you know, I've got pneumonia. Can we do this next week? It had to be done. So I have very few memories of it because I had a very high fever. Um, I was somewhat delirious. And I remember the last day of recording, I went home and two friends of mine came over and brought me like soup and stuff. And they stayed for two full days to take care of me. At which point I finally broke down and went to the emergency room and that's when I was diagnosed as having pneumonia. Um, so those are my memories of the course. Okay, so you're not jumping in there, Josh. All right. <laughs> yeah, I, remember, I remember recording the vocals to the seven inch very clearly. Um, it was in a house that was where everything punk rock seemed to be recorded at the time. And it was notable because they had chess boards set up in the waiting room and a massive collection of very cheap printed porn, which was odd to be around all day long while you'd be recording. The new studio was very professional, and I remember us mixing there, and I remember us dealing with Donald Cameron, who was the producer, but I don't remember singing a single solitary note in that joint. It was a very sterile, very basic, functional thing, recording the LP in the new building. I think we, I think we were probably one of the first 20 bands to record it. I thought we started recording the LP at the house. Is that it? The house, remember there was a giant leak. Like, I think that's why they ended up moving. I think the console was um, ruined. Um, and then they, there was, because it, I feel like there was such a rush to get this record done. And then there was, we had to stop until they moved into a new studio. So I think we had gotten maybe the bulk of the record recorded at that house. And then I feel like we did fine mixes and guitar overdubs and backup vocals at the new studio. I, th I think that's what happened there, because we almost finished it. And then we had to like, there was like a two month pause where they found a new place. And then that was the other studio, which wasn't far, but it was, you know, like uh, humongous compared to that tiny little house. But I, I don't know, I could be <laughs> a long the time. The trippiest thing about talking to old bandmates is everybody remembers different ingredients. Because everything he's saying makes sense, and I vaguely remember it when I hear him say it, but I hadn't thought about that whole sequence of events in 30 years. Yeah, I just I just remember starting, because we wanted to have something out, we were we so badly wanted to tour, and we wanted to have something out other than a 7-inch. We I think, I think the LP was finally, we had a hard copy of it when, by the time we got to Boston, I remember getting it at Al Quinn's house, I believe, was sent. That's when we had. Sounds right. Everything. What was amazing about that, though, and this is for you digital era boys that are late to the game, Greg, Greg, Greg. Was, <laughs> am I the only? I, I want to say I'm this. Kidding. Am I'm I the only one born time. in the eighties? Am I the only one born in the eighties? Yes. Yes. <laughs> what I know is you're the only one who would think to interview Casey 
see Jones about the no front answer seven inch instead of me and Gavin. But anyway, <laughs> um, <laughs> hey, I did reach out. I didn't. I think that. he did reach out. In all fairness, Fair <laughs> so 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 the thing about Boston, okay, what what I wanted, what made me think about why I brought up the digital thing. I, I shouldn't be picking on you. I'm just trying to get deep laughs. I have a good but sense of humor. If you watch the video of that at the channel or the edge or whatever, I, I get those venues confused. But if you watch the video of that show, the crowd knows the lyrics to the LP songs. Mm. That's because everything used to leak on cassette and get saturated across the country before anybody would ever have a freaking copy of anything. You know? And I was, I remember catching that a few times on tour, like how the hell do you know this? You know, but everybody was trading tapes. And possibly videotapes. I guess that's quite possible. Yeah. Uh, so I don't know if you would remember anything about recording the vocals for the LP. You said you didn't. That, um, but just the, you, you did. You, I think that you, you know, you stretched your voice and the things that you're kind of known for in "No for an Answer" and you know, a song like I, "The Naked I remember Face. that a lot of people were not thrilled with the change in vocal styles. I think even within the band, we all knew each other from the "No for an Answer" head first bar side era, and nobody expected that to be coming out of my throat. And yeah. 30 years later, the quality of it is still debatable. But I got a lot of incoming fire, not from these guys, but from the outside world, with people saying it sounded like Sinatra or it sounded like I had a stomachache. I can tell you flat out what I was going for on any of those held notes was Sean Stern. You know, and it's the and it's not Sound and Fury vocals, it's the it's the who can you believe in seven inch? The three song, three song EP. If you go and listen to that, you'll hear what Fat Throat from No For an Answer was trying to do. You know, which was, you know, who can you believe in? It was to me like, wow, that's hardcore opera. That's amazing. You know? But what I like about the vocals is that it's not, it, it just sounds, to me, it sounds like it, it still has the urgency to it, but it doesn't sound like, it's not like, um, like the later Ignite stuff with Zoli where it's like perfect. Like it does, he's, it's not perfect. He could probably sing the 411 in his sleep and I couldn't sing a single Ignite song. And the other thing is there's a cheat in the 411 vocals, which is you go through all this melody and you go through all this stuff, you'll lay low and on something through through something where these guys are laying down great music. And then the choruses, which are starker and where you have space to sing between the notes, listen to that record. I scream choruses like I wouldn't know for an answer. That's clearly a cheat, reaching for the familiar ground. And, and this is the part where the mic will face the crowd. You know, because there are, there are bands now that I do where I don't write group choruses. And I remember in the last band I was in, I was thinking to myself, if anybody was to pull the microphone away from my face, it would really bug the shit out of me. <laughs> you know, so, so times change. That being said, the backups sound great on this record also. <laughs> they just sound yeah, cool and good. they sound like, they don't sound like, um, for lack of a better word, they don't sound corny. They just Isn't sound... it like just you guys and maybe Scoots and Anthony or... I think I feel like it was the band, and then maybe like I feel like maybe Nelson. I feel like some of the dudes from Mission Impossible were there. Billy Rubin was there. Pollard's on the case. I am. I got the. Uh, <laughs> let's see. Backing vocals provided by Erica Christian, but she she does that's, the. Uh, that's on one song, yeah. Yeah, and and that's the. It's not even a. She's singing with with you. I guess it's Smalley. We talked about Mike Murphy, Oglesby, Billy Rubin. Mario Reza, uh, Sean Higgins. Never mind. We got a crew yeah. together. You got a big crew. <laughs> I, I was going to say, I could keep going. But you did list all four of you do backups, too. Uh, Aaron from Mission Impossible. Yes. Yeah, yeah. 
but backups are a very hardcore thing. But it just, I mean, to me, four and one is more of a punk, well, punk like hardcore sending, band, you know? Kevin is sending riffs out right now, and Josh has some stuff, right? And like the stuff where I can already hear the structures coming, there probably won't be group vocals. There might be duetting, which you yeah. know, Kevin and I or whoever is willing to hop on the mic would probably have to play with a little bit. But I think that template is out of, is out of my system. You know, of I'll do this thing and then you, the 20 of you scream back at me. I don't, it's, it was a different time in psychology. Well, I think the other thing with the vocals was that the, at the time, I think, I think Dan was an easy target for a lot of people that, that didn't like change and that, that were very uh, content with, or would have been content with, with, with Dan to continue doing what he was doing. Um, but nobody else was doing that. You, you didn't, you didn't see a lot of singers that went from like a really deep, heavy growl to really just belting it out like that. And, and whatever people may think, um, it, it, nobody else was doing that. And, and that I always thought was, was awesome. And, and, uh, you know, we, we were, I don't want to say we, I, I was intentionally trying to not fit into some sort of a mold. And, and so like, if we would play a string of shows with Price on a Crutch or, or, or whomever, the things I would be writing the next couple of weeks in my head would be considerably softer just to be the opposite. And then if we played a bunch of shows with like some, you know, shitty emo band or whatever, then it would be back to like the heavier stuff. And for me, at least, I, I was always very proud of the fact that we had an identity that, that was very much our own. Um, the influences were, were there, obviously. Um, I, I, you know, I mean, I, I mentioned on this podcast before some of my influences, and they're very, they're very evident in the way that I play. Um, but I think as a whole, when, when you look at the execution overall and the contributions from each, each member... I don't think anybody was doing what we were doing. And that that's something I'm very proud of. It's interesting to hear because one of the things that, in retrospect and a little bit at the time, um, I wouldn't say I'm a shy person, but I've always been a bit more insecure than I would let on, which I think all human beings are. But during the band and then later, it was always a hell of a thing to think, what was I doing trying to sing like that? I had multiple members of Farside in my band and Popeye in my social circle. You know, it was like, good luck with that, Captain Dave, man. You know, and it's a, it's a, you know, we'll see what comes out of my throat this year. I'm singing in the car right now and I sound all right. You know. Well, it's, it's got to be easier on your throat also to sing than to growl. I'm not saying, I'm not saying easier in terms of making it sound good, but like, your voice could last a little bit longer than if you're just screaming at raw full blast all the time. Have you ever heard Shiner's Club? Yes. yes. It's a, okay. I was going to say it's a lesser known thing that I did, but typically I wouldn't keep any of the vocal tracks that I recorded until my throat was destroyed. Hmm. Go back and once my throat is absolutely falling to shit and half the lines, you can't keep them. And it's like, yeah, okay, Paul, let's do that again. You know, and all the destruction was the usable stuff. Yeah. This is going all the way back in the other direction. Just a couple years later. I was just going to say too, like for all, you know, for Dan, none of the, what I think is cool actually is that none of, none of the bands to me sound the same, you know, that you've done from 
know for an answer to this, to the other projects that we've talked about and other bands. Um, but before we move from the LP, I wanted to ask too, you, you decided to re-record those homophobic was, um, was that just maybe to get it out to more? Cause I think it's an important song. I don't remember what the thought process was. Do you guys? I mean, my assumption is that it was just to fill out 10 songs. Yeah, I think we really wanted to have, we just didn't have, um, that was, I think, the best and that we had, you know, and we, I I don't know, I I think it sounds good. I I like both versions, but I think we really couldn't justify putting out a nine-song LP. So you guys are vinyl, I I would assume some sort of a multiplicity of people on this interview are vinyl nerds, you know, and, and Josh worked in record stores for a long time, right? I had always heard that the requirement for something to be called an LP was 20 minutes and 28 minutes in runtime. Right. I have yep. five LPs out. I think I have yet to record one that goes over 25 minutes. <laughs> like, yeah, I wonder if it's, that, all, I wonder always, if... it's always, we're dangerously close to having enough, enough songs for the album. Let's get in the studio, you know? And also, I think, like, Broke a Verbal Assault played last night, and I've seen the set list. They played 12 songs, and right now we have 13 songs, and we're sitting here wondering if we have enough. I believe in Get Out, Get In, Get Out, and Leave Them Wanting More. I mean, that's to be determined what's going to happen. But a shorter LP, to me, is better than a longer LP. A shorter set that leaves them hungry is better than exhausting them. I'm also 95 years old, so my knees are going to give out. You know, there's just a lot of things to be considered, but I like... (laughs) I always like the immediacy and they hit hard and disappear of hardcore. Yeah, I think I, 10, I song, agree. 10 songs is perfect Absolutely. for a hardcore yeah. record. Yeah, and especially for vinyl. Yeah. Five on one side, five on the other. Yeah. Boom. But I just thought maybe because, like I said, lyrically, it is kind of so in my mind, because it's not like it's not like re recording sounds that much different to me. Mm-hmm. So I always just kind of thought, well, maybe they wanted to, you know, hey, the LP is going to get out there more. We want to. When we sure talked. When we talked about doing the band again, when I interviewed Mario for the Dano Says So podcast, and I just brought it up as something that I knew we both get asked about. I said, you know, here's an 800-pound thing. Those homophobic was the reason he specifically suggested maybe we should do the band again. And he was just talking about, you know, uh, relevance and breaking molds and people having... It was like, you know, it seemed, it seemed like the world advanced in a lot of great ways over the last 30 years, and then in the last two years started to roll back a lot of ways. And including, you know, in, in matters of sexual tolerance and everything else. And it was hearing that out of somebody else's mouth and somebody who I really, who I really respect. And yeah, sure, he was a member. But it made me think, no, we didn't milk that song. That, that song is one of the more important things we ever did. Uh, I, I agree, even as on the outside. Like, and, 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 you know, we talk a lot, too, on here about context. And you're thinking in 1990, hardcore bands, they weren't writing songs like those homophobic no to me one of the great bullshits and great fallacies that we were able to tell ourselves back then is that all these guys who six months earlier at in hard stances not like this but i'm saying would be at like a hard stance or a head first or a carry nation show and then calling each other fags in the parking lot and so gay you're doing that and saying suddenly they're all crawling all over each other to sing backups to those homophobic well they're thinking and their tolerance actually didn't turn on a dime sing-alongs are just traditional I mean, did we maybe contribute a little bit to a growing acceptance of something that had been previously viewed horribly? Yeah. But at the end of the day, singers going to sing alone. You know, it was, it was, I think it was a brave song to write, but looking back and still being in contact with a lot of the people who were there, absolutely 
impassioned in their support of it, their thinking is still every bit as archaic and dated as their actual calendar birth date. And, and I, I get that too, but I guess I was trying to think too, even just a matter of perspective, like imagine, you know, I imagine someone that's gay listening to that. It's part of hardcore. They might feel a little bit better. You know what I mean? Like it just, certainly, it certainly opened some doors for me when I moved to the Bay area. I got a lot of, you're the guy that wrote this, you know, and you were in, and you were in no for an answer, dude. That's, you know, like I, I, I people were incredibly kind. Yeah, like, you know, and, I guess and that's it, what I mean. Like, I think it would be, um, because especially at that time, it would probably be a welcome, um, I don't know, some, you know, I, I, I'm bad at articulating myself here, but I think you know what I'm saying. Speak like, played Crazy Fest about five years later and did this thing, big room. And I said, uh, how many people in this room are gay? You know, hold up your hands, right? And this is five, six years after 4 on one Still very few people held up their hands, right? And then I said, that's the statistical impossible, right? To the crowd and yada, 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 uh, went on and on about it. I guess where, where I'm going with this, interestingly enough, I mean, Boyce said, you know, Boyce said Fire played that show and there's a, there's a parade of tolerance right there. But interestingly enough, it still wasn't anything anybody was willing to wear in public. Like, you know, four-on-one wasn't something powerful enough to make the hardcore world out, you know, yeah, I guess it's just building blocks, though, like seeing that hearing that song in a skate video at the time was very like it was very powerful. And I think not just to me, but probably a lot of people. So maybe that's something that being in the band, you don't have a the and same it's, perspective and it's, it's a on trickle, You know, it's a trickle effect, maybe. But yeah. queer core, pansy division, all these things going on in the Bay Area. Why weren't they in the news? The wheels had to be greased by, by, by straight, straight edge and becoming from the cool kid color. It, it was it was tolerance, but it wasn't thorough. Or it was acceptance, but it wasn't thorough. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, good Couldn't point. shit on your own brand, Dan. Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I I I definitely see what you mean. Yeah, and, and I'm assuming like we said, you said in the Bay Area, you know, the Gilman scene and all was just a whole different thing than probably Southern California. I thought it was a better thing, but everybody knows I think. The Bay Area? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was because, like I said, my my main things, which, again, I this should not have fallen under my radar even as a teen, was, you know, I loved the, the D.C. stuff and the Lookout records, like the Bay Area punk stuff. Um, one is Reagan country and one is Jell-O country, you know? Yeah. Jason, you, I know you had something. We didn't really talk about how – 411 stopped playing together and broke up after recording the LP and then touring for a bit. Yeah, I don't know yeah. that we actually broke up. We never up, broke up. Yeah, yeah. This isn't a reunion, guys. That's just the longest intermission. <laughs> it's been a hiatus. Like 30 year hiatus. <laughs> I, didn't come, I didn't come home. That was a big part of it. Yeah, we played our last show. I think it was a good one. It was. Yeah. And you you stayed up there, and and not maybe I'm remembering incorrectly, but Josh, I think not too long after that, you went out on the road with with uh, Jawbox or Shutter to Think or somebody. Jawbox and Circus Lupus, yeah. Whoa, yeah. nice. And Mario was already um, doing Metro Shifter stuff. I think trading tapes, like recording and sending it and recording and sending it back. Um, 
So it was, I think it was just kind of unspoken that, that we were we were done. How much longer um, re- did you end up in back in Farside after, I don't remember the time, but it was, was it four or five months or even sooner? I think it was sooner. I, I think I joined Farside in October of 92. Okay. And it was, and it was specifically like, like when they came to me and, and offered, I did it specifically because I had nothing going on. Okay. And so I, so in my head, I, I, I just assumed without us ever having talked to them that, that the band was, was done. Yeah. Um, and so I, you know, Papa asked and I was like, Oh, I got nothing else going on. Sure. I was, I was very involved in a whirlwind thing with a, a woman who was a staff member at Maximum Rock and Roll. And I was going to spend a few weeks with her and uh, write a book. And seven and, a half, seven and a half years later in two books, I finally made it home. You know, so it was like, it was all, it was all, you know, the world just kept changing, you know. And it was, it was only maybe a year and a half, two years after I was up there that Kevin and I did a, a long distance project that I think in our, perceptions of it suffered from suffered from being that far apart pre-cellular era there was very little communication going on during the god forgot project you said you were going to ask about well i mean it was you know it was mailing cassettes and you know having 15 minute conversations about what the other member might do next and you know the end result took some getting used to i think but i listen to it now and i'm like man that is some desperate shit you know yeah it's, i mean those those lyrics are pretty heavy um, on on that record for sure. I was and that was John of, I was spending all of my time with a survivor of of sexual abuse, of childhood sexual abuse, as it was coming to the forefront of her psyche. I had never seen a human being in that much pain in the first person. It was really the only subject I was going to be able to write about very well. Yeah, it's definitely uh It's not lighthearted. That's that's for sure. I wanted to t- touch on something. So, Josh. What were you doing for Shudder to Think, Roadie? Oh no, uh, uh, well, Jawbox, yeah, um, yeah, Jawbox. It, sorry, yeah. Basically, I mean, they were friends of ours. I, I feel like, did we play our first show with Jawbox? No, but it was one of our first shows. One of our, but we just had become friends, and um, we stayed with them, and it just sort of they just had asked when we came, and I jumped on it. I um. Yeah, it was like one of my favorite bands. And it's like, absolutely, yes. Um, there, we just, I feel like at the end of 411, we just sort of, there was definitely, like we said, we didn't break up or t- even really talk. There was just this, I think there was quite a bit of, we were all kind of disillusioned. And um, one thing that um, hasn't been brought up was we were really trying to make a, a leap on not onto, say, a major label per se, but we had, we thought maybe some interests in some other labels that ended up not really uh, obviously didn't sign us. Um, people come out to see us. Um, and I think that um, I feel like at the time, I don't know how everyone else felt, but it's sort of like maybe this thing had just run its course. Like we had gone as far as we were going to go. We burned really bright for a real short amount of time. And I think we just kind of petered out just as fast. Was um, one of the labels epitaph? Because I could see this, this to me would have fit in. Yeah, but I don't know. Um, Was it? One was Epitaph and the other was Alternative Tentacles. And one was, A&M came to see us at the Whiskey with Youth Brigade. So, you know, 
rejected by Jello and rejected by people who are probably defense contractors. We like to cover all our bases, you know. But I think there was just probably, I don't know about everyone else again, but um, just feel like we had sort of taken it. We'd done what we wanted to do. Um, it was kind of a bummer, uh, obviously. But um, yeah, so it was just, it's weird. We all just, as we didn't really talk about it, but we all had something else to do, like right after. We all ended up doing stuff. And then, I don't know. I remember Dan, I swear, I'm, I completely maybe remembering this wrong but um and this is pre-tub thumper were we offered some shows with chumbawamba uh when you were uh it's possible they were yeah there was there was a real synergy between max and rock and roll people and them and they used to spend a disproportionate amount of time in the bay area okay and uh i was up there in the two styles that would that would make a little bit of sense i think that was like maybe mid 93 i'm not sure but i just remember what i love the what I love about 411 is if you can find another band that had any notoriety at all, because we used to, we played small venues and thus we'd play shows that were pretty packed all the way across the country. But I think we're the only band you're going to find on flyers with Neurosis, you know, and a job box and Bikini Kill. You know, it's like. And Fugazi. Yeah, yeah, well, back to normal. Yeah. yeah. Neurosis being the odd one out in there, but mm -hmm. me throwing them in on purpose. Because to me, it was just like there's this, there's a diversity and a willingness to accept otherly things that's gone. And I feel like we were aggressively, in fact, determinedly part of that. We very much like to book outside of our expected sphere. And we were on a record with extreme noise terror, which I love being able to say that out loud. Nausea, <laughs> final conflict, and extreme noise terror. And 411. <laughs> What was it like? Not? What was it like playing with Bikini Kill like back then too? Because I know there's Kevin. He was sitting on the stage for their old M6. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was excited to play them. I at the time I wasn't a huge fan of their music. Um, I just I just thought they were sloppy, um, and it just didn't appeal to me too much. But I liked what they were about. I liked how confrontational they were. Um, I liked that they they upset people. Um, and so I really, I, I, I really liked that aspect of them. I would grow to like them more. I think the, the last record, I can't remember what it's called. It's Reject All American. Yeah, um, I really like that record. Um, but when we played with them, I, I, I think they were still not new, but you know, they, they weren't as good as they would come. There were, but there it was, it was there very were some cool to play with them. Sorry, Kevin, my bad. Yeah, no. So there were a couple couple things that I think would be interesting about that show, which is first off for Orange County kids whose music is pretty influenced by DC, right? That show was microcosmed as fuck. I remember Josh talking with uh, members of Nation Ulysses and me just being mad that everybody involved had better hair than I did. Um, I remember that Kathleen and I had to be taken aside and hash out who was actually going to play at the top of the bill. Um, they wanted to play before us. We felt that their crowd was largely there exclusively for them and would leave before we played and graciously they ended up playing after us and it was, it was the right call, but it wasn't, you know, cut and dry going into the building. And it'd be interesting to see how that same conversation would play out 30 years later. I mean, I don't think they would suggest that anymore. They're, a, they're a monster, but you know, personalities develop. And so you had a, a baby Kathleen and a baby Dan arguing about you know, who plays when I'd love to see a tape of it, you know? Um, but I went on a long walk with a fire party, Amy Pickering, who I had, a, I had a not particularly well-disguised huge crush on. 
it was like you got to check all these great boxes about being in DC the first time you were there. So that was a besides just the fact that it's 411 and bikini kill and I think snap case and some others. It was just a hell of a night. It was a, it was the right way to do DC. Yeah, that's a that's a great bill. I was going to ask Dan if you remember I have a, a bunch of old zines uh, that I've been just kind of given, especially with starting the podcast, like, oh, you know, just sometimes look through. Do you remember anything about doing an interview for um, with Vic DeCara? Uh, I think you were in one of, ah, was it his Inquirer zine? I might have been in the Inquirer and I might have been in Razor's Edge. I had a running headbutt going with the Hare Krishna Temple for years. Right. But I know like, and Vic, I mean, you know, Vic uh-huh. is also another person, very uh, outspoken. Um, and especially back then, I just was curious if you had any, like just memories of that whole. Uh, Not specifically. There, there's, there's three, there's three temples I can remember in my dealings with the Hare Krishnas. One was that they put a Hare Krishna logo basically on my chest or, you know, side by side with my face on a flyer for a show we played in San Diego. And that put me through the roof. Um, it hadn't yeah, been Vic, checked. Vic that. mentioned that I think in, in his it wasn't, it wasn't, we didn't book it as a, as a benefit for the temple or for the razor's edge or for anything else. And he got there and saw the flyer and like, well, this is adorable. So, you know, go ahead and book 108 on a flyer with Anton LaVey, I guess. I don't know. That was, uh, that was head first, very first show, by the way. Was it? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was no for an answer. That wasn't, then I remember I debated Hare Krishna and its place in hardcore with Ray Capo in Suburban Voice and that was supposed to be a three-way interview that was also supposed to have a choke in it I think essentially for comic relief but he begged out at the last minute so you know fuck him we still slept in his apartment but that wasn't cool um, and then uh, I remember circling back and meeting Vic just a few years ago maybe five or six years ago it was all laughs and all fun, and we were able to make fun of each other and heckle each other. Um, and those moments are probably my favorite part of growing old in this music, is that you get past a lot of your own shit. It doesn't mean that it was bullshit. It doesn't mean that your gripes weren't valid. It means the life right. keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and the intensity of the conflict can start to seem quite. Yeah, I think that's well said. Um, I'm assuming maybe you guys ran into each other at the – would have been maybe the revelation, one of those no, revelation. No, Dundine, just... Dundine played with 108. Okay, well, there you go. Um, the Razors, the whatever interview it is that you're referring to, I had had them cherry pick my statements and use my graphics paired with them enough so that I wanted, I said I'd do an interview with Vic if I was allowed to tape it as well. And that I wanted the answers to run and edit it. And he did. And then he added a page after the interview where he rebutted all the answers without involving. Yeah, I was. I, I'll have to. I'll have to Sounds dig about right. I will never again participate in any church's propaganda, even to provide a counterpoint. It can all just walk west until it's motherfucking half of us. Well, I'll have to find the. I'll have to find the zines. But I remember it was like a lengthy. Like it was like when I got it, I was like, oh, cool, and I'm like. Uh, this might be TLDR for me because I saw. I said, all the if we words. do it, you've got to run the whole thing, and I and I'm and I'm taping it as well. See, but even just then, at that point, the whole thing is already stupid. We should have just walked away, you know. And then and then running and running a page afterwards where you go back and say, when Ben said this, I should have said that. Well, yeah, okay, but motherfucker, you did. Yeah. Well, like you said, at least it's good later in life. You can just be like, hey, 
And it doesn't mean this we stuff heckled the valid, shit out of each other. It was probably one of the funner shows that we ever played. I I, I believe in his book. He talked. I mean, I know you know Vic. I think liked that kind of confrontation. You know, because it That's makes no your way. brain. Yeah, it makes your brain. You know, you're, you're kind of a good way to exercise your brain, right? Like having these discussions. And I think you know he welcomed it, especially when you're having it with somebody who's like on not a level knowing enough field. about you guys to know whether or not. This is offensive, and if it is, I apologize, because um, we could certainly have a civil conversation about it. But pretty much without exception, I consider organized religion to be a big piping full of maggots that people only eat to massage their own ignorance. So it was always going to be a heated debate. Not my game. Yeah. You can be spiritual. You can believe in a higher power. You're buying books written in previous centuries by people who never had cell phones. You're really not keeping up. No, I understand. It's a, and it's definitely a, a, you know, you're not alone in that, mm-hmm. in that thinking for sure. I don't think I denied the existence of God just now, although I'm an, although I'm an atheist, but I don't buy that there's a single church out there who's positive supersedes their negative. Fair enough. There you go. You got a dose of that side. <laughs> we got a we got a pull quote. That's what they'd call. It. If this was a, a magazine, we just got a pull quote. Well, listen. But, um, um, before we wind down, we need to briefly touch on the. Is this a, is this a complete discography? Is there anything missing at all? Is there any, uh, you know, recordings out there that are going to surface? Um, this is it. This is every song that you guys ever recorded. I mean, there's like cassettes that you might have of live sets, but but uh-huh. in a studio, yeah, yeah. There's and a I, guess, I guess Flesh wasn't in the studio. Yeah. There's a song that's disappeared into time that we're trying to track down that we think was only recorded on the radio called mm-hmm. called Legal Tender. Uh, other than that, I think everything that we actually thought was worth it made it to tape. You know, if you say winding down, I mean, we really need to talk about present tense before we get out. Yeah, you know, yeah. Oh, well, well, I had I had a way to I had a way okay. to kind of move into the, that. The, um, the discography okay. is something I did in 2014 when a friend outside of work said came and shed really wanted it to exist and came and offered to fund it. And I was living on ramen and unemployment at the time and not in a band. And it sounded amazing. And I got in touch with these guys and they were all supportive about doing it. Uh, I don't know if we were that great about getting copies to everybody, but if we weren't, then let's take care of it in San Diego this year. Um, but, uh, it just was what it was. It was a very simple process. Went in one night with Paul Miner and just got everything leveled out and listenable together. And uh, yeah, worked, I think worked a worked a worked a distribution deal in a single phone call with Rev and yeah. was able to crank it out. It wasn't yeah, that's the most involved process. I picked up my copy at Rev HQ. Um, I think it's just a really cool way to digest everything in one sitting. Really, you know um, those harder to find comp tracks and, you know, um, it's cool. It's kind of a cool, well, at the time it was a real bookend to the band, but 2022 and moving forward, we might see some activity from 411, correct? So, yeah, I, I wanted to, cause I, I'll have to say, having talked to Kevin a bunch of times now and just Dan from just knowing you, online for years seems like one of the more unlikely coming together of an old, old band for sure. So I was 
definitely surprised to see, you know, the, the hints towards. Well, some, I, some f- after watching Dan's interview with Mario on Dano says so. Yes. That was where I first thought, okay, maybe there's something yes, there. I, I watched that interview and saw those two guys talk to each other about it. And I was like, uh, I wouldn't be too surprised if something happened after this conversation. So was that kind of the impetus for this? Well, we've, we've talked, talked about, about it more than once. Yeah, Kevin. Yeah, yeah. We, we talked about it years ago when, when I, but I was living overseas. And so it just logistically, it wouldn't be possible. And I think I even mentioned, I think I threw like Brian Baltrack in there. Like, why don't you get Brian to do it? And Dan was like, yeah, fuck off with that idea. So we tried to duck out. So um, it's come up a few times. Yeah, my one, uh, Revelation, maybe it was the one they did in 2017, came gunning for us pretty hard. I think it was that one, or maybe it would have been later, one of their reunion fests. And Mario makes his living as a musician. He's a, you know, it's his sole career. I don't think there's that much skating money out there these days. I don't know. Um, and his second child was on the way. And he made the financial needs involved in it very clear and very specific, which was the adult and responsible thing to do. But that hasn't been a factor now for whatever reason, for whatever it's going on in, in he and his wife's life and in the current situation and in their their household's earning capacity. Now it becomes a practical conversation. You know, Kevin lives out of state. You know, there's like trying to do this as older people is a completely different question than it is when you're younger and living with mom and dad. You know? Oh, yeah. Um, so it's been logistically tricky, but yeah, you're not wrong. I was nervous about interviewing Mario. I hadn't talked to him in at least 20 years at that point. Um, and you know, he's Mario. I don't mean that I, I don't bond at rock stars. In fact, I'm kind of shitty with him. It's not that he's that it's that he is musically prodigious. He's one of the most respected musicians I've ever met. And it could have been that his take on 401 when I raised it, cause I didn't pitch, do you want to do this? But I can't interview you in without talking about the band and it could have been that come down to my what come out of his mouth was like yeah that was kid stuff man we fucking sucked you know it could have, it could have been something like that and i gotta admit i would have taken it kind of hard but he much to my surprise seemed maybe the most open to it out of all of us and he raised the fact that it had a social relevance now alarmingly so that maybe it wouldn't have had in recent years but you know thanks donald the world turned to shit that was going to be, I mean, we, and we touched on it with, with those, uh, those homophobic where these lyrics, whether fortunately or unfortunately, this is another instance. And sadly, we've had a lot of these on the podcast where the lyrics are still relevant 30 years later. Um, you know, those homophobic, like you said, didn't stop homophobia, you know, uh, you know what the, you know what the most relevant song on the LP is now? Blackout. Think about the media climate. Think about the, Think about the exaggerated filters of news and the fact that reality changes. Reality changes from channel 56 to channel 57 on my cables. Yeah. Um, I mean, there, there's very real cause to sing these songs again right now, unfortunately. So what can we expect from 411 moving forward in the future? Well, we're trying to get a couple shows together. They'll be in California, and that's about, I think, all we can really say at this point because it's it's still being figured out, and there's a lot of things to work out. Um, on a personal note, I've been 
working very hard to relearn these songs. I think I kind of went into this thinking like, oh, well, you know, I was 19 when I wrote these. They'll be easy. And they're they're not. Um, they are considerably faster than I remember them being. Um, <laughs> but um, like like Dan said, we, we've been working on new stuff as well. I think I think there's more more to say. Um, that, I mean, just going back to the current climate thing. I live in Texas currently. I think by the time this comes out, I'll be living in Washington State again. But uh, you know, my state is currently neck and neck with Florida for being the unwiped butthole of America. Yeah, it is yeah. it is unbelievable the things that are happening in the state and the things that our, our governor is doing. Our attorney general is an indicted fraudster. Um, uh, our, our two senators are, are just the fucking stupidest men. Ted Cruz is, he is barely a human being. And the political discourse in this country has gone from legislature and making laws and trying to make things better for the society as a whole to just trying to one up the other guy. And it's on both sides, but I, I think it's particularly bad on the right. So, you know, pick, pick whatever song you want from the LP. It's relevant. And, you know, as, as much as things have gotten better in a lot of ways, there is still so much more that, that just needs to improve. And in a lot of ways, it feels like we're sliding backwards. I mean, this whole uh, don't say gay thing in Florida and this uh, transgender uh, uh, child care uh, is, is child abuse here in Texas is just beyond the pale. Yeah. It's so and the, fucking and the, stupid uh, that it can't even be defended other than, well, this will piss off the liberals. Yeah. And that that's the state of the world right now. And as much as I'm not a reunion guy, which is primarily because I don't want to embarrass myself. Um, I think there is, there is a lot that we have to say about, about the current situation, both from our songs from 30 years ago and whatever it is that we come up with that, that that's going to be new. One of the yeah. songs that's probably furthest along right now, and none of them are far along at all. We would not want to BS you guys. But like when when I realized that these guys and particularly Kevin were open to the idea of new material, it checked an almost necessary box for me. I was going to do it anyway, but it made it that much more meaningful and that much more something to be excited about. It's a song called "Then Again, Then Again," and it's, it addresses simultaneously the notion of reunions and, and asking why they're done, but also we made all this progress, but then we didn't, and the culture and the social mores of the country appear to be able to turn on a dime. So you may wish that saving the world was the calling of the young and naive, but violence can't be the can the can the cancer of middle age. You know, you've gotta you've gotta speak to what's going on and what's going on is largely shit. Yeah, I'll agree to that. And yeah, to, I always I you know, and I know we've talked about it before, Kevin, but I do feel for you. Uh you know, be not not to disrespect Texas, because I actually have a lot of friends in Texas and they're all just as disappointed with everything as you are. Um, so it's just, uh, it, it's definitely, it's definitely the right time, I think, to have this kind of substance in punk and hardcore for sure. Um, yeah. Well, well, I mean, you would think that the, 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 the stuff going on with, with Russia and Ukraine 
would be sort of a, a unifying point for America right now. And it's not. I mean, there are, you know, my neighbors are, are just fucking up in arms that gas prices are high and that inflation is up. And, you know, we shouldn't be uh, uh, stopping the import of, of oil from Russia. We should be drilling more here in Texas. And it's just so pathetically short-sighted and just thinking, you know, five inches around your head, not thinking about the wider world. And it's not just Texas. It's, it's everywhere. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm very confident by, that by the end of these two shows and whatever new material we release, we will have solved all of that. Yeah. And we can all finally <laughs> have a nice sure. nap. For sure. Yep. <laughs> so as far as the vagary of this goes, I reached out to these guys prior to this interview because I had a few times in recent years gotten myself in trouble with promoters and venues because I had let cats out of the bag before things like pre-sale links existed and things like that. All right. What I think we can safely say is we're playing Jan- we're playing July 2nd and 3rd. And the two cities in whatever order, there'll be San Diego and most likely Columbia. You know, travel plans, kids. There's that. But it's interesting. There, there are business considerations that were never a part of this when we were doing it before. So I wanted to not make the thing seem amorphous or unorganized. In fact, what it is, it's organized on a level we're not used to dealing with. Yeah. Um, there's yeah. also some some essentially confirmed festival dates in October. What there isn't a lot of is travel. If the, the hunger for travel became a very real thing, not all of us can do it, and we would have to look at what kind of temporary fixes we could go to, go to, and that's not a bridge we have to cross right now. The idea right now is to not embarrass ourselves and be a band worth seeing in the stuff we have booked, you know? And my feeling, in as long as I've been in 411, and there's only one other band I've ever been in that I felt this way, but is that the other three members are considerably more skilled at this task than I am. You know, so I, from a, a musical standpoint, these guys are going to bring it. The heavy lifting is going to be getting the big black brand glob of shit ready for it. What's the other band that you uh, have? Are you able to say the one, another everybody band? In China's club can, everybody in China's club can play my dick into the dirt. You know, <laughs> they're, 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 it's, but that's a great way to work for a singer. For to sure. Be, to be outgunned and to be playing catch up. Oh, hell yes. Yeah. You know, wouldn't have it any other way. But I can't play a single instrument. There is, it is openly debatable whether or not I can carry a tune. And what's funny is I don't like gorilla vocals. I was never capable of the total savage abandon of somebody like a, a Sam McFeeders or the total vocal control of like a Dave Smalley, you know? So I sort of flop around in here, carried, you know, carried on content determination. So it, besides, so I guess for, I'll ask this to close with, unless you guys have something else off, Jason. Not so, that. you're telling me no East Coast shows are planned at the moment. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say I was gonna say I'd love to see you guys out here on the Same East here. Coast. My response I guess, to that would be get your asses to California. Fair <laughs> enough. I mean, we've been talking about that. You know, the we just got to get more Patreon subscribers to pay for these, these yeah, guys' plane tickets to come out here. Yeah. Can you hear the coins jingling in my... I'll edit I have a up. prediction yeah. for, for you guys. If what's supposed to happen in October goes off, we'll see you guys in October. Because when you catch wind of the, the nature of the bill, uh, I don't think I don't think it's going to be much of a debate for most people whether they come out or not. Will like, we finally get to play with Chumbawamba? 
Exactly. When Chumbawamba shows happen in Circus Lupus. In Texas, playing with Chumbawamba in Houston. I'm confident we'll see you guys. There you go. (laughs) Um, So just to wrap up, I was going to say for for Dan and Josh, you know, we've talked to Kevin um, before. Are you guys, besides this, Dan, like what's up with Shiner's Club? And I feel like during this interview, you've mentioned them, but it seemed like it was sort of in the past tense or is it just kind of in limbo or just. My two favorite bands I've ever been in, 411 and Shiner's Club. And one is considerably better known than the other and they sound nothing like each other. But in both cases, it was because I was playing with musicians whose skill sets challenged me. I I can't see Shiner's Club swinging back around. Um, everybody's everybody's moved on to other things, and unlike four one one, doesn't have the track record to create the de- to create the necessary demand. You know what I think for me personally is it's like okay, when I really want to sound pained and I really want to sound extreme, I've now been in a band that set the bar that has to be at minimum the starting point. Like if I'm going to do that kind of harsh pained music, I've at least got to get to there to be able to do it. You know what I mean? Yeah, because you like, did the conversely, LP, right? Like you did the full there's an LP, LP and, and, and there's an LP and an EP, and then some digital stuff, and then two digital EPs. Um, but for, like with four one one, I think about this. Uh, my suspicion, we don't talk about it much. We go song by song, and they're all just building blocks right now. They're all just files, right? But my suspicion is maybe a three or four song EP dealing with people that we've dealt with in the past that we trust and just really concentrating on the quality of it. And that in and of itself is a challenge. You've got members that haven't played in decades. You've got me who hasn't sung in that style in decades. It's like, it's not a small, it's not a small chunk to bite off. But I don't think any of us would be doing it if we didn't think we could put our best foot. Yeah, it seemed like with Shiner's Club, just to, uh, I think, I guess the pandemic probably also took a lot of wind out of, sales because the LP didn't come out too long before the LP came out before the EP. Um, The EP didn't come out too long before. I mean, I can put it pretty bold because it doesn't hang it on either one of us. I mean, John Coyle and I are probably too similar to live. Both very, very high, high strung and very, very impatient and, but very rarely running at the same speed. Right. And so I think the band is rarely satisfying to both of us at the same time. We're friends. We're friendly. We're intensely supportive of each other's works now, but I could see us never getting back in that space for fear that, you know, the walls would be blood. (laughs) Like, you know, he's one of the best guitar players I've ever played with. But unfortunately, you know, if it happens again, it'll be a pleasant surprise. Nice. And then uh, Josh, what, what, uh, you doing anything music musically? Uh, no, (laughs) I think I played my last show with Chris Lohman's band, um, collateral damage, like, and I don't know what year that was, but I still play the bass every day. Um, nice. Have, but uh, I haven't played with anyone since that. Probably the maybe ninety four, ninety five. Oh wow! Okay. I'm trying to get slowly but surely all my published and unpublished photography uh, online. I was going to ask about that. Yeah, um, I just um, as Kevin can attest to, I just sent him stuff. I just don't have the patience or the uh, skill to sit behind a computer for too very long. Um, If I could find someone, I have someone in mind um, to help me really make these things uh, look good. But um, yeah, I have, I have a tiny little archive of some really 
good stuff that has been seen and hasn't been seen that um, I would like to get out there. I had known your name from photos before um, 411. Like I just seen your name pop up. So we'll, I would love to sometime for a bonus or something, maybe talk to you, uh, especially maybe once you compile the photos, I'd love to. Talk oh yeah, to absolutely. About it's funny. Well, uh, I went on your Instagram and I saw my underdog photo on there. Uh, with Javi's the, the newest one. Oh yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> so like definitely, That's, uh, I'm that was the that very the first show I ever started taking photos at. I think wow. that's or 88. And Dan, you're on that photo. Yes. That's the one with right. me, and, me and Zach both in it. Uh-huh. Yes. You, Zach, actually, Cubby and Mark Hayworth, Bob Wheeland, who's an old sloth crew guy, and I believe Dennis Rensing's brother is on that, who I never met, but is in that photograph as well. It looked like a smiling grapefruit. In we we did... We, we, for patrons, we, uh, I say we, Javier, we did the, you know, Richie's wearing that Bob Marley tie-dye yeah. shirt. And just for, for goofs, we, uh, goofs. You know, do you have, do you have one? With yeah, you? no, that's what I was talking about. That's what I yeah. saw. Yeah. So yeah, has, I can see it on that. that was Hav great. did the, uh, a rep, we did a replica yes. of that shirt and Hav actually hand dyed, you know, it was a arduous process, but. Yeah, it took me like two weeks to hand dye yeah. like 21 shirts. Well, wild. it was funny because I heard the episode, the that actual episode, and I, Jordan had always told me that how much Richie had hated that photograph because of the t-shirt <laughs> story of it until I didn't know it was something that was given to him just there and he felt obligated to wear it. So <laughs> I, just, I just thought he maybe thought, he had he's like I had just some shitty taste that night, but I mean, it was the a gift, and he had to. Uh, do we want to do? Hot tracks. Hot tracks. Uh, we. I mean, if you want to, I don't know. That could take like literally another half hour. I don't know if these guys have time to sit around. Maybe we could talk amongst ourselves if they. If we do a rapid fire hot tracks. No oh, explanation. Say, I don't think the three of us have any idea what the fuck you're talking about. Yeah, so on, Kevin knows. Kevin knows. On our show, for every rev release, we do a hot track where everybody on the call goes through and talks about their favorite song on the record that we're talking about. You don't have to get too deep into it. It could just be like, yeah, I love this song because I love playing it. Or I love this song because my dog died and it reminds me of my dog. Whatever it is. <laughs> I, I don't even know that I could pick a hot track on the four on one 12 inch. I will I'm say, say discography. I was going to say, okay, this, yeah, we'll do this discography. I, I would own. probably say for the discography, my, my hot track might be under fire. Um, I just, I, it's such a great way to start a record. Um, but I also have always, always loved the intro to carnal knowledge, the way that that like, little drum fill starts in and then the bass, um, you know, comes in with it. And it's like such a groove. And my original vinyl copy had a scratch right there that just looped it. And so that bass and drums just looped and looped and looped. And and you could never get out of it unless you like nudged the needle a little bit. So that's like indelibly burned into my mind is that the the bass and drums for that. (laughs) So thank you for that, for that. Josh. <laughs> sure. <laughs> I think that was the first song I ever wrote. Yeah, I, I, in, in the, the insert for the 12-inch, the 
Um, you know, in the song credits, it's mostly O'Mahony and Murphy, but then the last two songs, it says O'Mahony oh, that's and Stanton. Right. Yeah. So nice. Yeah. Uh, Greg, right. what about you? Hot track. Jason, do we want to step brothers it count, count to three and then say yeah. it at the same time? Do it. Since sure. We already know. Sure. sure. <laughs> Jason, what's our hot track? One, One, two, three. Two, three. The, the naked, naked face. face. Nice. Yeah. Song rules. I just love the vocals on it. I think it's cool you stepped out of your, I don't know if it was your comfort, you know, stepping out of your comfort zone and, and belting those lyrics out. It just makes the song stand out a little more. It's just a cool uh, journey the song takes you on from the guitars to the beginning to the kind of angry vocals at the end. Song's it's powerful. There's a, lot of, yeah. there's a lot of power in that song. Yeah. I love the tempo. Like uh-huh. it's, it is like it's slower. slower. Uh-huh. Um, it allows, you know, the music to stretch out. Dan vocally got to stretch out a bit. Um, and it did remind me that was one that gave me those government issue. You vibes maybe a little bit more just like vocally um, rest in peace. John Stab, Awesome dude. Um, I don't know. Yeah, I just really like that. Really like that track. That song garnered, I doubt he even remembers telling me it, but that song garnered me the best compliment I ever got from Kevin. So I'm glad it exists for that reason. You got anything to say about it? I mean, I can go on. I I share one of those out every time I fall obsessively in love with a girl from a health food store. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That that would be my song as well. I, I do like the vocals on it. I like how very, very simple the song is. I mean, it's four notes and, and two of them are an open E and an open A. I mean, it, it couldn't be any more simple, um, but it, I don't know. Once we get into that middle part, especially live. Um, that was the was, thing. It was, yeah, it was just, uh, there was something in that middle part where, where Dan cranked up the vocals yeah. And Josh and I just kind of, again, it's two notes, but we just managed to make a fuckload of noise out of it. Um, it was very cathartic to play it. And the lyrics, I remember, Dan, when you put those together, I think you and I went for a drive and you yeah. were telling me about them because I remember the situation. And I remember thinking, like, these, these lyrics are lyrics that I think anybody can relate to, but I especially at that time, just because of a personal thing I was going through, I could really relate to it. And it, it was, um, I don't know how else to put it. It it made, it made me feel very, um, it felt like we were in very good hands lyrically because I had been in bands where, you know, John would write lyrics and we didn't didn't know what he was writing about. And uh, you know, and, and you didn't really have much of a say. And so, you know, those lyrics in particular, it, it, it was, it felt like we, we were going to be, I knew we were going to be something special. And that was, so, so yeah, that one resonates with me. With that song, it was one of those things, yeah, the vocals are the biggest stretch on the album. It was one of those things where it was a very naked feeling, God forgive the pun, that's somewhat unintentional. But I felt surrounded by guys who could sing better than I could in Orange County. Popeye could destroy me, you know, Kevin has a better natural sense of melody. This kid named John Mai, who was in Triggerman at the time, he had a much higher register, but he could he could sing pretty, right? And and I felt like like King Kong trying to croon. Um, but there was an openness and a nakedness to that song, or a willing to just leave it all out there. That I didn't know it was so identifiable for other people. 
know, I could always roll around on my back and share my pain. I'm, I'm notoriously uh, lacking a filter on that front. But we would go out on the road in like places like Louisville or Indianapolis. Coming out of that break, those rooms would blow in half. And I think it was at least that the 30, 45 seconds over the course of that night that almost everybody in the room accessed some personal pain or some sense of viola violation or isolation they experienced during those years. And that was a hell of a thing to be a part of. That was really meaningful for me. I, I feel really lucky about that. Now, twice divorced 50-year-old men that are going to be watching us this year, they might just sit back and read a magazine during that song. We'll have to see. Yeah. So is that your hot track? <laughs> I'm a big fan of uh, those homophobic. I really am. Um, tell you a story about those homophobic paying, paying dividends because we all, to a certain extent, have heroes. Heroes is kind of a clumsy word. But a few years ago, Seven Seconds played uh, Alex's Bar in Long Beach. And they were going song to song to song to song, not really taking breaks, and they were hauling ass. They ended one song, and boom, stopped on a dime, and Kevin points across the room. I didn't know he knew I was there. We'd been in touch at the time, but I hadn't told him I was coming that night. Points across the room and goes, this one's for Dan O'Mahony. In that split second, I knew he'd be going into Regress No Way, which is the song that largely inspired those homophobes. Awesome. The seven-seconds anti-homophobia tune on the Pusshead comp. And that gave me the gnarliest chills. Kevin didn't know I was going to be there. I didn't know he was going to be there. He pointed and shouted that out, and I knew exactly where he was going, and it was because of something that fell on one. That was just like, ah. But see, that's what I was talking about, too, with I think the, the trickle effect we had, to bring it full circle, we had um, Norman from Texas is the Reason on before, and he talked about how important Regress No Way was yeah. to him hearing it as a, as a teen. Um. So that's a really nice way to tie it in a bow. Nope. We got to get Josh's hot track there. Yikes. Um, I, it used to be the discharge cover just because it made me laugh to hear Dan say the word truncheon. Yeah. Um, and I, uh, I, I, like Kevin said earlier, I just love that we were on a compilation with probably every other band, with the exception of Final Conflict, probably were like, what are they doing on this comp? And that made me really happy, just to be with those bands, and then that, that part of my youth could be, uh, you know, I guess we lived through. But um, I really love Life Minus Me, I think, is just because it was the first song that um, I really felt comfortable enough to just go off the page, I guess, uh, and and kind of complement what Kevin had left a lot of open space. And it was just, um, it just started to feel comfortable and confident as a player. And um, I like what it had to say, but I just, it was just, there was something kind of seamless about that song all the way through. It just like from beginning to end, it's, it, it was something I think we used to open with occasionally, or maybe towards the end uh, after we, we did have an, an intro um, at some point, but I think that was just the last tour, but we would open with that. And it, it just, um, you wouldn't think, but it was a, it was a great opening song and it was just so much fun to play. And I, so I guess purely for selfish reasons. Awesome. No, that's what hot track. That's what, that's the spirit of the hot track. Yeah. There can be any num any litany of reasons why it's the hot track. It doesn't matter. 
It's the hot track. The song was also good for, um, there was, um, there was a, a, a person who would come to our show um, named Stacy who, who thought that the lyrics were, I've got the dizzies, like I'm dizzy. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Uh, Murray. That's great. <laughs> stage nice. time, stage time, Stacy, as famous as any one band ever to come out of Orange County. No, it was it was Murray. Oh, yeah. was it? It was Stacy Murray who thought that. Yeah, when she saw us at Bogart, she thought that you said you. Stacy Murray, more obscure than any one band ever to come out of Orange County. <laughs> My best friend in the world. Oh, tell her I said hi. I love. Stacey. I will. <laughs> Before we wrap up, you've also been Dan. You've also been doing the Dan No Says So podcast. And what are, what's one of your favorite, yeah, but the, the banners behind you, but what's one of your favorite episodes that you've done? Um, I have two favorite episodes. There's not a lot of internal debate about it. Uh, I did an interview with, a, with an investigative reporter named A.C. Thompson. He's a, he's a documentary filmmaker and, a, and a, a print reporter. Well, I guess not print, but I'll be online now. He's one of the bravest people I ever, I've ever met. And I met him when he was a BMX bike riding, dreadlock covered, merchant on telegraph avenue when i lived in berkeley and you know we would talk girl problems and punk rock and he goes into some of the darkest corners of the world and bravely asks the questions that need to be asked and i will forever be grateful for him that he repeatedly over the years sits down and talks to me in whatever medium i'm working that's one of them the other one was i took a long time i took more than 100 days off of the podcast after my father my father's health took it yep and I wanted to do something big and unexpected coming back. Like I can reach out to Art, Pete Graniak, joke, give a second, that's easy, right? But I had been over the last few years very late to the party getting really involved in like first generation punk rock stuff, really excited about like Max's Kansas City era, early CBGBs. And all of that tracks back to Iggy and the Stooges and tracks back before that to the MC5. And somewhere in my head, I got it between my ears that if I was going to do the podcast again, I was going to interview Wayne Kramer from the MC5 before I started booking the other guests. And it took months and months, but what it did is it gave to track him down. What it did is it gave me time to prepare for it. He was a phenomenal guest, but also I never felt better prepared for a guest. And I don't think any of the conversations have been more fluid than that one. I'm eternally grateful to Wayne and his wife, Margaret, that they gave me, they gave of their time and I am almost as, as eternally grateful that it took so long to nail him down because God was there ready. That was a really good good interview. Some of those questions that you asked, I mean, if I if I had been asked those, I those were some tough questions to to answer. And uh, and his answers were, I mean, I hate to say it this way, but because you know he's he's an older guy, but he just you could definitely sense the the wisdom that the guy's life had given him, and it was. I don't know. It was it was a good lesson. And I didn't know you had a podcast. I thought that was wallpaper. <laughs> <laughs> you guys play bass? <laughs> uh, I, I, I could do it. I got it. <laughs> well, guys, thank you so much. Um, it was a pleasure. Uh, Jason, Hav, you have anything else? Nope, not at all. No, no thanks for I your time. We, we covered everything. Thank you very much. Yeah, I appreciate right. you guys you. doing this. Yes. And we'll be talking, you. hopefully, to all of you in some iteration uh, down the line. Dan, Dan you know, there we'll is. We'll talk to you about speak. Yeah, there's some um, speak stuff. Uh, Josh, I'm going to talk photos. 
Thank you.